Now I don't know nothing about music, but I could see in that girl's eyes that she was having feelings she wasn't sure she should enjoy. He was a taste of forbidden fruit. She could have eaten him alive. It was the greatest carnival attraction I'd ever seen. He was my destiny. Right under my nose. In Memphis. It's Saturday morning, I'm making pancakes, and as his wont, my husband often regales me with his thoughts about something he's just watched. Now, what did you just watch in, in preparation for the, for the um, Oscars? For the Oscars, I try to see every, every, my whole life I try to see every Best Picture nominee, and they now have more nominations and fewer time to do it. But... Uh, I'm going to do it this year, and last night I watched the uh, very subtle and very uh, low-key version of the, uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, uh, which is, uh, is all the subtlety of a Sherman tank. Um, it was... Okay, but the... Uh, yeah, look at... You know what you're getting with... The, you know, Boz Lerman doing Elvis. I mean, that's, you know what you're getting into. You know, you, it's not going to be a low, it's not like a low key Norwegian movie you're going to see. It's going to be, you know, the, the biggest, flashiest entertainer and our most over the top filmmaker. So, yeah, you, you know what you're getting. Um, I, and, and you kind of have to be, you, you, you know, you're not going to watch a realistic movie. Um, but the performances, yeah, and because you know it was a Best Picture nomination, and I remember I saw the poster over when it was released last year, and I thought like, wow, there's a whole industry of people who impersonate Elvis. You were to think they would have found someone who looked like Elvis to right. play Elvis. So this is a really interesting point because famously Kurt Russell, I think, played yeah. Elvis in a film. Kurt Russell played Elvis in a made-for-TV movie in the late 1970s. Directed by John Carpenter, the f famous uh, horror director who, uh, of, who I think he did it just before he did Halloween, which of course Halloween was Carpenter's big breakthrough I've never movie. Heard of it. Yeah, shot in an obscure town. Um, Wait, what I was going to say is that so there's kind of different schools of thought about when you're doing a, a biopic or something based on a real person, whereas you try to find the person who absolutely in real life looks like that person. Like right. You're always getting said, hey, you know, you should play that person in a biopic. So that's like one school of thought. Um, and that's something that we did when we, on Criminal Minds, when we wanted to cast a young Mandy Patinkin, um, we found an actor who absolutely, yeah. you know, was a doppelganger for him. Then there's another school of thought that is more 
the physical attributes aren't as important because you can always change that with makeup or whatever. It's more the essence and more sort of like a, a concept of the, the, the real person rather than just a dead on impersonation. Like we're not hiring like Rich Little or, right. or who was, I don't even know. There was, uh, um, what was he? he, did the John Madden. I actually worked with him one point. Uh, it's escaping the Ross Marchand, I think, right now is like just a genius person. And Jay Jay Farrow, who does a wonderful impersonations when he was on SNL, he did incredible Obama, does incredible, you know, uh, yeah, does incredible Eddie Murphy. But um, but I'm much more of the mindset of, you know, I thought the kid Austin Butler, mm-hmm. who does not look like Elvis Presley, yeah. but in the film did a very good job playing a character named Elvis Presley. No, I'm, 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 I'm saying because this is, the film is not like grounded in reality. So therefore, you know, let's not worry. We've seen, there's a lot of film of Elvis. There's a lot of Elvis movies. I mean, there's Elvis is not someone who doesn't have a lot of uh, references. references to him. Uh, the example I gave to you, there's a couple I can think of right off the top of head where I think it's much more important to have the essence of who the person was as opposed to saying that person looks exactly like him. Like for like the I use the example of uh, Anthony Hopkins does not look like Richard Nixon. And yet in the equally wackadoodle uh, film Nixon by Oliver Stone, he embodied the spirit of the character. And that became more interesting than if he the character that they a character named Richard Nixon. Um, you what? What's the matter? Okay. Well, hey, spoiled milk. We'll get over. This is that's the name of this episode. Spoiled milk. Um, don't cry over it. Whatever. Oh, it's spilled milk. You can cry over spoiled milk. I don't think Angela Bassett looked like Tina Turner, but she did an amazing job performing as Tina Turner. You know, that sometimes you get the the essence of who the person is rather than, oh, my God, they looked exactly like them. Jessica Chastain doesn't really look like Tammy Faye, and yet she captured it last year. Yeah. And so I think that that, to me, especially if you're doing something that isn't just a sketch or isn't just a comedy, but you're trying to dig into a character study, then it's more important you capture the character rather than simply, you know, having them look like them. And I think for this type of movie where the amount of character you can develop with all the bells and whistles and fireworks going on, uh, and sometimes literally fireworks going on, um, I think that that he actually, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed his performance. Mm-hmm. Um I, I don't know the answer. I don't know why you would have him sing because because the, now I may well, be wrong. Jim Morrison, oh, Val Kilmer is Jim Morrison. That and you know what? And that was I, I don't know how, especially because everyone was jumping up and down for anything Oliver Stone did back in those days. I don't understand why why Val Kilmer. Okay, let me see if I can do this by memory. The five best picture nominees that year were uh, Robin Williams of the Fisher King. Oh, you know what? It was pretty crowded because they didn't even nominate Jeff Bridges in The Fisher King, and I thought Jeff Bridges was incredible. Uh, let's see, Warren Beatty and Bugsy, Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, Nick Nolte in The Prince of Tides, and none of them won because it went to Anthony Hopkins 
in Silence of the Lambs. Ladies and gentlemen, he just pulled that out of his brain. He did not Google that. No, I am Google. Google calls me. I don't remember if I locked the door downstairs, but I can tell you that. Um, okay, fine. But 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 Butler did a good job. Playing, and, and doing the performance in service of the movie, that he was able to be over the top when needed, and he was able to bring some reality to the insanity when needed. Yeah. And um, and so I, I I I was surprised by him. I was I was completely expected to just sort of roll my eyes and say, okay, they found you know. Plus, to you, he's a total newcomer, and he kind of is to me. I mean, I I know about him a, a little. I feel like he auditioned for me once, but um. Everyone auditioned for you once. I know it's true. Um. But he doesn't have, he's not carrying the baggage like Kurt Russell. Right. <laughs> he's not carrying, a, you know, that kind of a career behind him. But I think that was, in some ways, that sometimes is helpful. Yeah, for sure. That's what but, mean. yeah, but sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's not, sometimes you like to have the baggage of an actor, you know, playing a playing a well-known part. Right. You know, like having, you know, you know, Al Pacino playing Jimmy Hoffa. You know, who's someone who's we've seen images of him and everything. He has to be someone that when he walks in a room, everyone goes like, oh, my God, there's Jimmy Hoffa. That would be tough in The Irishman. It'd be tough to do that with a totally unknown actor. Someone like break- Robert De Niro playing, uh, what's the other guy? Who's his nemesis? Who's Jimmy Hoffa's nemesis? Al Capone. Yeah, well, yeah, well, that wasn't Jimmy Hoffa's. Uh, those are two very different. <laughs> Sorry. But we know when he played with who, 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 yeah, who was, who was, who was Hamlet's uh, nemesis? Macbeth. That's right. When Macbeth comes in and Macbeth versus Hamlet, when they're taking it out. Anyway, I'm uh, sorry. I didn't mean to. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, but no, yeah, you're right. When, when uh, Costner had to go up against Capone and they found, well, we found an actor who looked just like Al Capone you've never heard of, or there's Robert De Niro. Right. The baggage of that, uh, you know, comes about. Yeah. Um, but in this case, Having a uh, um, having the unknown in the film, uh, I you know I'm, I'm maybe he's, I know he did some like Disney show. I think he was in a Tarantino film. I, I probably have seen him. This wasn't his first movie, but it was his, certainly his first time being smack dab in the spotlight of a very expensive, high profile movie. Um, yes. So, so on on the one hand, um, and I was impressed by that. The film itself, you know, you know what you're getting with a Baz Luhrmann film. You know, Baz Baz Luhrmann is a special, is a particular brand of movies. Like, you know, did Moulin Rouge? He did. uh, What was it? He did Strictly Ballroom before. But that was when he was still somewhat rooted in reality. You know that you know that when he did, if he's going to do. Romeo and Juliet or The Great Gatsby, it's not going to be, well, here's a, 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 a typical adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. No, it's going to be... Introspective. No, it's going to be... It's the one with Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes taking place in some sort of kind of Miami Beach type place with buildings and, and you know, it was, it was if you saw it... it it's wackadoodle, and also with the music. I mean, remember they were playing like Nirvana at uh, um, Moulin Rouge, or they were singing, you know, uh, Elton John songs. So he understands that we're going to do stuff. Yeah, Yeah, this is all about. 
Yes, and uh, that's what I'm saying. In some ways, it's a perfect marriage. Like, you know, I mean, you're not going to see, like, you know, Ingmar Bergman's Elvis would have been a very different type of movie. Or, like, or Lars von, Lars von Trier's Elvis, where it's on a sparse stage and Elvis is, like, picks up a cabbage and says, like, yes, I'm now in... This cabbage represents Las Vegas. And it's very... And it's all done and, you know, I mean... Part of me wants to see Lars von Trier's, you know, you know, or, you know, was it, you know, Mike Lee's Elvis where it's all improvised, like everyone's given like an outline and just improvise it. Just, just be stately and British, you know. Somewhere Wally Shawn. Yeah, so yeah, well, he walks in and like, you know, talks for a little bit. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, these are all different versions of Elvis where we, we, you know, you know. Yeah. Well, they did that with the Bob Dylan yes, film, where they had Heath Ledger and Keith and Kate Blanchett and 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 Richard Gere, everyone playing. You know, Bob. Yeah, he played Bob Dylan in one of the eras. Yeah, and so they could have done something like that. I love that deconstruction of an identity, um, which I think is really cool. Although I really did not enjoy Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe. Right. Well, so but so you know, Boz Lerman is going to be theatrical there's going to be anachronistic music being played um i had a problem with some of the anachronistic music in it especially when elvis is being inspired by the rhythm of blues of memphis and in and of course again it's Boz lorman so it has all the subtlety of the normandy invasion and <laughs> at one point you have the woman leaning out the window singing hey Nothing but a hound dog, and Elvis looks up. What's that woman singing to me? That, that sounds like it could what? be. A... No. Why would she do that? Because she's supposedly recording, and you know when you record, you tend to open up the window and lean out the window, and be like, oh, "I had nothing but a hound dog," so Elvis can hear it. And then he's walking down the streets of Memphis. So that's not canon. That's not true. Canon. No, that's not true. Canon. That people didn't lean out the window while recording songs. <laughs> Um, but then as he's walking around Memphis being inspired by the, the rhythm of blue rhythm and blues throughout the, he's a, a white man in the South being inspired by the black music culture, which became a very big reason why he was sold by the, by the Colonel and by people saying, we want someone with that voice, but that we could sell to white America. And he was able to encapsulate that. They address that with him hearing all these songs that would inspire his music. And as that's happening, the the rhythm and blues fades out and hip-hop music starts playing. Hip-hop versions of Hound Dog and All Shook Up start playing. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Play the... I understand culturally what he's doing. He's saying this was the equivalent of hip-hop back then. That's fine, but you're trying to make a point about the music itself and probably exposing audiences to the music for the first time of the original, of the artists. original artists yeah. who have been lost to time. Let's, why not focus, put them front and center right now and maybe get some of their you know families some royalties instead of then saying, hey, just imagine if Elvis was hearing hip hop. I said, all right, that's cool. I wouldn't mind seeing that movie too, but you made the point to say the music of Memphis was inspiring him. How about giving it some of us here, Baz? That being said, and of course, it's one of those biofilms where you totally lose track of what year and how many, like, 
it feels like two weeks after he recorded Hound Dog, he was on the set making uh, uh, um, uh, leave, uh, Viva Las Vegas with Anne Margaret. And um, and then he would say, the line, but I've been doing this for seven years. Seven years? I thought this was last week. So Because, you know, Austin Butler looks the exact same at age 17 as he does as Fat Elvis. I mean, oh, the only difference is he puts on the, the, the sideburns, kind of like counting the rings on the tree to see how old it is. The length of the sideburns is the only way to detect the length, the passage of time in this so movie. No, well, the other just it's a little untucked there, but. So can I sidebar for a second that one of our twin sons' first Halloweens, what did I dress them as? Elvis. But specifically. Vegas Elvis. No. Fat Elvis. Yes. No. No. So we have twins. That means two. So I dressed one like Jailhouse Rock. Jailhouse Rock Elvis. Jailhouse Rock Elvis, and then the other, my mother made a little white satin jumpsuit yep. and was with a cape, by yep. the way. Yes. And so, yes. And what did you do with her hair? Uh, what did I do with it? I sprayed. You sprayed <laughs> dark. dark black our two-year-old children's hair. Yeah. They walked in the, Thank you very much for the Thank you. Trick or treat. Anyway, Thank you. They, they Thank you. killed at the preschool that day. Let me tell you. That's, the, that's the whole idea. Yes. Anyway. Okay. Resume. All right. So yeah, I mean, if that, I mean, this isn't a film review, but I'm just saying that his performance, his performance matched it. I, I have problems with biographies that try to tell the whole life of someone because for that reason that yeah. there's a lot of things, yeah, there's a lot of lines in the film that would be like, well, seeing that it's now 1968 and the war is going on, you know, it, it's it it you have to cover things in ways that are not. Realistic, but then again, we also had hip hop music in 1953, so I think we've thrown um, reality. reality out the window. Um, there's most of the cast are uh, basically a bunch of Rosencrantz and Guildensterns who basically have to have a sign around them. Why? Here comes BB King. Hey, I'm BB King, and I'm you know I'm hello. I'm the producer for the Ed Sullivan Show. The only other major character in the film is played by Tom Hanks, who plays Colonel Tom Parker, um, who managed or mismanaged. And he is the narrator of the film. And the whole film is basically told from his point of view, from his deathbed when he died in 1997 in Las Vegas. Um, I have to say this at the top, especially because I want him to appear in my podcast. I'm a Tom Hanks fan. I like Tom Hanks as an actor. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. I love Tom Hanks, the movie star, and I think he's a fine actor. Yeah. I like Tom Hanks best when he is Tom Hanks. And by that, I don't mean playing the same nice old character. Yeah. It's that when he starts doing voices and things like that, I start to check out. I had a big problem with the two times he ventured into a New England accent, which was Catch Me If You Can and Captain Phillips. By the way, both films I like and both films I think he's very good in, but for no reason at all, he decided to have a New England accent. I'm trying to find Frank Abingdale, who's posing as a pilot in the sky. Okay? Now, in this film, he decided to give us a performance where he played the penguin. 
He was Burgess Meredith's The Penguin from the Adam West Batman show. He had the big nose. Yes, he was. But do you know what? First of all, there's a lot of Elvis impersonators. There's not a lot of Colonel Tom Parker impersonators. And he, you know, we, we knew that he was a larger than life guy with a huge hat and, and kind of an indescribable accent because he was a refugee from Holland and um, tried to pass himself off as an American colonel. All right. So he wasn't really a colonel. He wasn't really a colonel. That becomes a, uh, uh, um, that becomes an issue in the movie. Like basically, who are you? You know, he plays, he's, he has like the weird prosthetic nose. He looks chubbier than he really is. And he kind of says, I am going to, I need, he, he actually has the line when he's hearing Elvis on the radio for the first time on a country station. He said, it was, he was someone, he said, I didn't know they would hire a, a, a black person to perform on a country station. And someone says, no, that's, that singer is white. And they're like, they move their track. I said, that's, that boy is white, is white. And you said he might have suddenly superimposed dollar bills on his eyes. You know, like I go to hire. I envision him in a jail singing about rock. Okay, they don't do that. They might as well have done that. Like he envisions all like I have been a you know he was a he was like a circus promoter and he found Elvis to be the opening act for his country star. And then he tours, and of course, they do the famous you know, shot of them driving around and like, okay, has a week gone by? I think a week has gone by. He said, we've been, and then someone said, we've been touring for two years. Two, I thought you, I thought you went to three cities. And then, and then the colonel is just, he plays the colonel with, you wish he had the subtlety and the nuance of Burgess Meredith's Penguin. Look <laughs> at that dynamic duo. I mean, it's so... The the show stopping the the best scene in the film, of which actually Elvis does the heavy lifting, the real Elvis does the heavy lifting, because there is a the the I I can't call myself an Elvis expert, um, but the the Elvis song that I love the most is Suspicious Minds. I think it's a great song, and there's a performance that Elvis does on the nineteen I think it's seventy or seventy one film called This Is Elvis where they show a live performance of him doing Suspicious Minds in Las Vegas. He's in, he's in the famous white suit, and he's like, this? it's ni- 1970. Okay. And this is the point in Elvis's career where he's his career fell apart, and then he had a big comeback special in 1968, and he became popular again. Uh-huh. And then the film This Is Elvis came out, which showed him in Las Vegas. It's a concert. No, but it's a concert film and following him backstage. It's when, you know, and, and, and you remember this is pre MTV and pre a lot of these uh, places where you'd be able to see this on, you know, on, on, you know, TV or streaming services. So people would go to the theater and basically see an Elvis concert in the theater, but also see him walking backstage. Oh, I think I'm going to get a guitar for this one. Hold on. Let me, uh, let me get the white suit. Well, I'll get one with the fringes on. I want the fringes on it. Um, and um, for those of you who don't know, Ter- Colonel Tom Parker uh, managed Elvis, sort of removed him from like local radio in Tennessee and made him a worldwide sensation, but also um, 
managed every aspect of his career with an iron fist. Like he couldn't, like there was a lot of things Elvis wanted to do. Well, I mean, he, he wanted to be, he, he wanted to be a big movie star. He wanted, and he wanted to be in good movies. Elvis became a very popular movie star, but all the films were films like Clambake, you know, or, or, you know, he did like one movie where he didn't sing and it bombed at the box office because we go, why isn't he singing? And, um, and so they just put him in these films or in this film, he plays a race car driver by the beach. In this one, he plays a race car driver by a ski resort. And, um, and he wanted to be in good movies. And, and he saw like, you know, Frank Sinatra was a big star, was like the big star before Elvis. And Frank Sinatra, you know, was in some very good, he was an, he was an Oscar winning actor and he was in some very good movies. And he also got frustrated that when the Beatles were allowed to make their own movie, um, you know, Hard Day's Night was a fun, clever, and you know what? The Oscar, Oscar nominated movie that was that was not just a cheap cash in on their their celebrity. Um, sure. And there was famously um, the Elvis wanted to star opposite Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl. And uh, the Colonel would not allow it. And he also worked, yes, please. He also worked on, um, I mean, what, you want me to tell you the Hal Wallace story about? But, but okay, but I'll stick to the point. The point is, the point is, is that Elvis was controlled by this, this person. And this great, the best scene in the film, and I say it's the best scene in the film because it's the scene in the film where they just decided, hey, if we're just going to tell Elvis's life without any any link to reality, but we're just going to be flashy and showy, then, you know, let's go do it. If we're going to do this, let's do it. And it's the scene when um, the colonel, is impl- it's said that he's uh, had a lot of gambling debts and he was using Elvis to pay off his, he was his career to pay off his gambling debts. And um, in the film, Elvis wants to tour the world. He's be, he's become big again because after his comeback special. So he wants to tour the world. He wants to see all the places he's never been to. And the colonel won't allow it. And part of the reason won't allow he's saying, he claims it's because he's afraid of his security. But in reality, it's because he has incredible gambling debts to gangsters in Las Vegas. Right, we just and, this, yeah. and he does not have a passport because he was a ref- okay. And so, okay, so he is signing Elvis's life away essentially so he can pay off his gambling debts. And so so he's the the gangsters are writing on a napkin. Like, you know, the the the, the deals that Elvis will get a million dollars a year for the next 5 years. Okay. And then Tom Hanks in full penguin makeup says, "That is good for the boy." But what are you going to pay me? <laughs> and they said, you bring... And now while this is going on, Elvis is on stage performing Suspicious Minds, his best song, in the full white costume where he's like, he's he's gyrating to the drums and flirting with the chorus members and the fringes are flying around. 
and it's a song about literally about suspicious minds. We should be suspicious. And then they write down on the napkin, like you would, all gambling debts canceled. And Tom Hanks, big grin on his face. Yeah, what about that dynamic duo? And they said, an unlimited line of credit at the casino. And Tom Hanks smiles. And then this performance ends, therefore, uh, basically tethering Elvis to Las Vegas and to Colonel Tom Parker to the point when Elvis is drug addicted and sick and he collapses in the hallway and people, including Elvis's father, are there wondering, should we administer him with the drugs that he desperately needs or should we get him to the hospital to be detoxed? And Tom Hanks says the line, the only important thing is that boy gets on that stage. And, and by the way, R.I.P. Lisa Marie. Yes, and you know, Lisa Marie is a character in the film, and the, his relationship with Lisa Marie is a part of the movie, and his relationship with Priscilla is part of the is one of the few times where it actually slows down. So why don't we treat a couple of these scenes like a real movie yeah. instead of Boz Lerman, you know, exploding on the screen? Um, but what you were saying to me before we started recording, you were kind of acting out the real Elvis's that that famous that famous. Yeah. Uh, movie and and how just he's just amazing. Oh, and on stage when he's doing it, it's he's first of all his vo- this is it's a, I'm so happy that this exists. I mean, I'm not a big music guy. I don't know a lot about music, but I am very happy that certain things of some of the bands and people that I like exist. Like all the footage of the Beatles and that became part of the Get Back. I'm glad that we have all that imagery of them at that point. My favorite band is Talking Heads. And I love that them at their peak is recorded in the brilliant Stop Making Sense. And I'm glad that that era of Elvis of in Vegas, white suit, you know, the, 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 just the insanity of the, the showmanship. Yeah. And they, they would cut to the audience. It's like this. It's like a, it's not an arena. It's a lounge and people have drinks. See some people are smoking cigarettes, yeah. but there's everyone's still up and dancing and he's playing off of them. And he's not, he still looks great. Like he's not fat. He doesn't get, he got fat later in the seventies when he realized I'm not leaving from Vegas, am I? And he, and he got, he got drug addicted and he got very, and he, he let his body go, but he still looks incredible. And, but you see that he is, um, he's sweating. His hair is a little messy. He was on stage and he, sometimes you hear him panting, like catching his breath. So, you know, it's not pre-recorded. You know, the, you are seeing him perform it live. Yeah, yeah. And he'll throw little things like, like an old friend I know, or shove it up your nose, cut by and say hey. Like, can I throw little jokes in? And he's smiling. And there's this, while he's, he's um, you know, there while he's singing, he kind of comes up to one of the, the, the court, the, they have like this, this church choir in the back singing alongside. And he comes up to the, one of the, the girls there and um, sort of gives her the little eye, and um, and you know then she kind of like bats bats her eye, like moves away. She giggles, she giggles and then he kind of and then she kind of moves away. And I was like, "Hey, where are you going? Where are you going?" And then he kind of like 
quickly snaps a head that does a does like a a whiplash turn towards he kind of like giggles and moves away and then he starts gyrating his hips like to the beat of the drums and at one point does a motion as if he's firing a machine gun while he's while he's on there and this is what Austin Butler is replicated during the scene but it's it's incredible to watch him and you see the real guy not the over the top thank you very much kind of Elvis impersonator you see this is what he, this is what he did this is why he was big and capturing that you know, they also recreate towards the end of his life and it's really hard to watch the performances from the last year of his life because he is bloated i mean i'm, I'm not saying it just to be mean he is bloated because he's just become this decadent henry the 8th guy but he's also his diet's terrible he's uh you know he's on all sorts of drugs and painkillers, and like when and in the film they recreate his final performance where he's singing "Unchained Melody." I've seen him do that, and there was one where it was he's singing "Are You Lonesome Tonight," and then he is babbling and incoherent, and yet when he sings, he's Elvis again. It's like that part of his performance could almost be on autopilot. He's so good that he was... Well, the, the perform- he has a gift. I mean, he's got this gift and it just comes out of him. And so he was doing like, there's, you know, there's that pattern in the middle. Of, Are you lonesome? Yeah. Tonight? And, then, and then he does a little thing and he he can't do it. He doesn't even know what he's saying. And he because his eyes are closed. And he what he's saying makes... What is coming out of his mouth is babbling. Right. But then when the when that bridge part is over, gets back, he said, is your heart... Fl-? And like, all the words are perfect. And like and and he sounds amazing when he does his final ever performance. He's singing "Unchained Melody." Someone has to physically hold the microphone for him because he can't do it. And yet, "Unchained Melody," which is you know, for those of you who don't remember, that's the song in Ghost when they're making the 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 pottery. Don't get us started on Ghost. <laughs> oh my, my! He didn't sing that, but you know, Elvis Elvis has been known to cover a song or two. Okay. Uh, the Righteous Brothers, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. But he sings his version of that song, right, and right, right, right. he can't. He's leaning over; his eyes are closed. He doesn't know where the hell he is, and he died like 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 a week later or something like that. But when he sings that song, he hits it out of the ballpark, and so and it shows what the amazing legend that he you know he had. Um, the look at it's. How old they they go to the end of his life? I mean, they uh, they they the last scene with him is he's lamenting the fact that it he wanted to be in the film A Star Is Born with Barbara Streisand, and of which him playing a washed up big star, he was smart enough to see the you know the, the not 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 the appropriateness, and maybe this would be. You know, Elvis's career had one that like it had ebbs and flows, and that he was big, and then someone like the Beatles would show up, and then he would come back again, and then he would fade out, and he would, and some other you know the stars of the seventies started to come up, but he was one of these people that would, you know, whose whose star would maybe fade, but then he would remind you. It's like you would make us miss you, Elvis, and they would come back and remind it, and it's maybe in the back of his head that he had a huge comeback in 1968. 
when he did his TV special. Oh, by the way, how they portray the TV special is absolutely, it, it, Avatar is more realistic. That Avatar is a documentary compared to how they did portray the uh, the TV special. I should mention that in a second. But to, to put a button on this, he thought that, you know, sort of the self-reflexive playing the washed up actor in a washed up star in A Star is Born opposite Streisand, who emerged around the same time of his special, that would have been, it would have been massive. Right. And, and probably, and probably would have introduced him to a brand new audience. Right. And, um, and instead, uh, according to the film, the Colonel and Barbara Streisand clashed and uh, surprise and uh, Chris Christopherson uh, wound up playing it in the, you know, yeah. And you know, yeah. Chris Christopherson is, I'm not, I'm not the biggest stars born fan in the world. I, I like the lady. I like the lady Gaga version and I like the original Frederick March version back in the 1930s written by Dorothy Parker. And I thought Judy Garland's was with James Mason was was good, mainly because it was a showcase for Judy. I just think we were didn't it's one of those what ifs. We were denied Elvis and Streisand in that movie. And that's one of the what ifs, you know, that you wish that, you know, God, why couldn't you get the brother and do that? <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Well, I, let, me, let me put one last button on this, and well, then I'll, I'll hit that. They, an example of the, how the film just sort of sometimes just says, we're going to do something for the service of the theatricality rather than the reality. Right. In the film, uh, the colonel thinks a good way to recreate Elvis was to put him in like a Christmas sweater and have him do a Christmas special. Uh-huh. And it's a, we are doing Christmas special with... I, I wish I, I'm gonna let me tone down Tom Hanks. You sound like a German sex worker. No shade on German sex workers. How do you know what German sex workers sound like so much? I look at I think that's a different podcast. And tune that in on Killer German Sex Workers with Dean and Lisa. That's why Brian's not doing. All the respect in the world for Yes. Anyway, but um. If this were on video, people would see what I see. Do you see what I see? A sex worker from Munich doing lots of things. Okay. Um, and he said, we'll have him sing Jingle Bells and Santa Claus is coming to town. We will have the snow and he will buy me my fireplace handing presents to children. And we will sell washing machines and sweaters of Elvis and Christmas. And so Elvis meets a couple of uh, television producers leaning against the Hollywood sign, like you do. What? What? Like you do. What? Yes. No. Yes. Do, do they think people don't know where the Hollywood sign is? It's like, Hollywood. It's not Hollywood, by the yeah, way. Yeah, by the way, I got a meeting. Uh, meet me by the O on the Hollywood sign. No, the first O, not the third. Don't meet me by the third O. I got a, I got a four o'clock by the third O. So... And so uh, I like to go whenever. And so literally, they have a scene where these two TV directors meet him by the leaning against the old Hollywood signs. Oh, yes! You can't even get to I know you can. And the, and there's Elvis. Are we meeting here instead of by your office that you're paying a lot of money for? Why aren't we in Culver City right now? Let me tell you something. 
When I like to think and reflect, I like to lean against the O with the Hollywood sign. And said, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to do a Christmas special. And the people said, I don't think you should do a Christmas special. I think you should do what you want. So as so as the colonel is watching the special unfold, they said, like, any minute we shall sing Little Drama Boy. And instead, a bunch of dancers come out and a giant sign that says Elvis lowers down and Elvis starts singing, you know, some of his great songs. And the colonels and says, you told me this is Christmas special. And I'm thinking like, first of all, it's tough to surprise people. It's tough to surprise people with a giant backdrop and choreography. Yeah, that's not something you improvise at Upright Citizens Brigade. That's like, no, you have to, that takes weeks and weeks to produce, which I'm guessing the special did. So I'm sure the colonel would have known before the sponsor showed up, before they rolled cameras. Right. That, planning that, yeah. And I just, maybe the TV producer, we couldn't get around the fact that like, you're, the, the colonel never popped his head in to say, can I see, like, you're, you're surprising him with... Well, is why not Christmas? Why singing Hound Dog? But um, but they uh, one of the like a trope in some movies that I don't like, and this is going to get to Elvis's desire to be in very good movies. Yeah. Um, and Starsborn is about as guilty of this as any. Um, even some films I love, like Singing in the Rain, is guilty of this. The artist was guilty of this. Films where the tragedy of the movie is that a famous person is no longer as famous as they used to be. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, how horrible that you're no longer as famous as you used to be. Right. Instead of saying, yeah, but you were famous. You were successful. You know, what? instead of, yeah. and, and I think. And, and I, that is sadly, I think, one of the things about the entertainment industry that I don't like, which it's never about, you know, feeling good about what you've done, but feeling badly that you're no longer doing what, you know, you did. Yeah. Like I, I think I'm sure someone, I'm sure someone looks at Steven Spielberg and says, what have you done lately, Steven? Huh? Like the, the whole idea that there's a, where are they now culture in Hollywood is toxic because we should sell it. You had a success. That's great. Instead of, Oh, that success is haunting me. And Elvis has a line towards the end of the movie where he's talking with his estranged wife who still loves him but realizes that he's he's a mess. And he says, like, uh, I never did anything that sustained. I never did anything of great quality. And I'm thinking, man, if Elvis is thinking that, what am I thinking about my little jokes and podcasts? I mean, like, God's sakes. But, um, but the, he, had a, he alluded to the fact that he never made a great movie which apparently is something Elvis was a huge movie fan, big movie buff and loved like great. He knew that some great, great movies were coming out in his lifetime. Like one of his favorite movies was Dr. Strangelove that he watched over and over again. (laughs) He loved it. And no, I'm fine. Thank you. And um, the Colonel had him sign a deal with Warner brothers uh, to make essentially all those awful movies. Like, like the, practically the only movie he enjoyed making, apparently, was Viva Las Vegas. And the reason was because it's it's just a lot of fun and it's silly, but also it was with Anne Margaret. It was one of the few times he felt like he had a co-star 
whose talent could approach like he could he could bounce off of Ann Margaret. Ann Margaret in his prime and Elvis in, in like the mid sixties. He felt there was a there was almost an there was a she she was a worthy co star of his, and so he apparently. What? Well, that's true, but, but, the, uh, but I'm not here to besmirch Ellie May. I'm here to praise Anne Margaret in her freaking prime. Okay, so um, and Hal Wallace produced all of Elvis's, you know, beach movies and dragster movies, which were almost all unwatchable. Uh, the trailer for the film Harem Scarum has to be seen to be believed. My my buddy from college, who's now a successful uh, horror director named Eli Roth introduced me to the trailer for the film Harem Scarum when I was a freshman in college. And it's fantastic. It's basically Elvis in the Middle East, you know, but shot entirely in Burbank, you know, but it was on the Sheik of Araby. But, um, and with it, where he sings this, uh, the, the song, Go East, Young Man. Um, but he was in all these awful movies. Now, Hal Wallace himself, his producer, was a very successful film producer. By the way, one of the films he produced was a film he won an Oscar for. Maybe you heard it. It's called Casablanca. He he produced many, many gigantic movies for uh, Warner Brothers. I'd be careful how I phrase that because I almost said giant movies for Warner Brothers because the movie Giant was a Warner Brothers film, but he didn't produce that one. That was a George Stevens film, but that's a different story. But, um, but... It's actually by accident, bro. Giant Elvis came up around the same time as James Dean, and Elvis thought he could be an actor along those lines. He was fascinated by movie stars like James Dean, like Marlon Brando, and he wanted to be he wanted to be in good movies. And now he would screen movies all the time with his Memphis Mafia. The Memphis Mafia were all of his boyhood friends and relatives who just walked around. That's right, King. You do say whatever you want. And he would screen movies with them all the time. One of the movies he screened was the movie Beckett. Beckett is a period piece where Peter Peter O'Toole plays King Henry II. He later played the same role in The Lion in Winter. Um, And um, Richard Burton plays Beckett, who was a... I forget who he was. He was was someone who went up against the, the king who was a like a clergyman. I don't remember the whole story, but um, it was an Oscar, you know, it was an Oscar movie. Was Man for All Seasons? No, it's called Beckett. That's why the <laughs> no. Man for All Seasons is <laughs> called Man. Yeah, that's Henry VIII. That's several Henrys later. There's whole Henry V in between. That's, you're six Henrys off. And no, Beck, no Beck, we just watched Man for All Seasons, oh, okay. which is Man for All Seasons, not Beckett. Once again, about someone religiously going up against a Henry King. I see why they're mixed up, but it's not the same film. And so it's a, it's a period piece, you know, costume epic and everything. Lots of stately British performances. And Elvis is watching this movie in Memphis and it's, and he's loving it, which I love the idea of Elvis loving Beckett. And, um, he, when he sees the credits, it says a Hal Wallace production. And that... He was enraged. Yeah. Told him to stop the projector and went on a rant, which was basically saying, 
That son bitch how was I gotta do my best officer. That son of a bitch was has put me in all this these terrible movies, all this crap. And he comes out and he makes great movies like this. So I wanna be in a great movie. He won't put me in them. Of course, I'm thinking, Elvis, who do you see yourself in at Beckett? He was the king, so maybe I'm gonna play the king. Who's gonna rid me of this meddlesome priest? I'm here in a second. I'm King England. That's what I'm gonna do. Well, give me a hamburger. But uh, um, but another he Elvis had Elvis's taste in movies was really was was wonderful. I mean, he had he loved movies, and I, I one of my never-ending sense of joy is that during that time in Vegas, he became an addict of Monty Python. He loved, Monty Python was introduced to America in the early 70s through BBC. They were already very successful in England, but um, they were started to put him on the BBC along with Benny Hill, and um, Americans discovered the Pythons. And one of the Americans who discovered the Pythons was Elvis. And apparently he would walk around quoting, like, you know, sketches to these Memphis Mafia guys who probably didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I was like, look at this parrot. This parrot is a dead, dead parrot. And uh, and towards the end of his life, or when he was babbling through Are You Lonesome Tonight, he was asked in an interview what his favorite movie was. And he said Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is one of the funniest movies of all time. I cannot, to this day, watch the scene with the knights who say knee and the rabbit biting the guy's head off and everything without thinking of Elvis watching it. You know, hey, Colonel, knee. Hey, look, at, look at that bunny. Bunny's going to bite his head right off. Um, and then when he was asked what his least favorite movie was, his response was, anyone I was in, which is really sad. That is really sad. Anyway, okay, so. Yeah, a, a friend of mine, um, Matt Belknap, who is a producer of the great podcast Never Not Funny, was also um, – Fascinated, he's a huge Star Wars fan, Matt. He was fascinated by the fact that Elvis died in 1977 and he he didn't get a chance to see Star Wars. The day he was going to see Star Wars, apparently it was like he couldn't get in. It was like sold out or something. He went to see the film Spy Who Loved Me instead. But uh, the we just love the idea of Elvis watching, like, look at that wookie. That's a wookie there. There's a big old... Oh, God. Look at that there. Look at that. Look at those two cute little robots there. Look at the little one. He's just chirping right at him. It's kind of sad when you're a prisoner of your own success. I mean, yeah, I mean he re- wanting to keep him in that box. And- yeah, I mean, you saw, I, I think Sinatra is the greatest example of someone who was as big as Elvis and was able to do a few things. Now, of course, Sinatra also became a Vegas-centric performer and kind of became a parody of himself towards the end of his life. But we did get to see From Here to Eternity. We did get to see Manchurian Candidate. We did get to see Sinatra um, uh, stretch out and do some things outside of his comfort zone that showed. Now, of course, he Sinatra also made a bunch of very lazy movies and were, you know, and 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 cashed in. But we don't have to wonder, did Sinatra have a great performance in a movie? In him? Yeah, we saw it. He got an Oscar for it. You know, there, there was no... Would Stars Born have been Elvis's, uh, you know, uh, from here to eternity? And remember, Elvis was only 44, 45 years old when he died. No. 
Yeah. Really? Yeah. And, you know, he would have, <laughs> I mean, he, he would have been in We Are the World. He would have been at Live Aid. You think about all the stuff, a 50-something-year-old, if, if, you know, if he had somehow emancipated himself from the colonel, what would have happened? Now, of course, there, the, the, the what ifs, like what if, what if, what would have his performance been at Live Aid? What would have his performance been, you know, you know, you know, would he have done a, a, a duet with Elder Barge? I don't know. You know, would there have been a synthesizer version of All Shook Up or something? But, 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 or would he have exploded in popularity again? You know, I think that he, there are some people who keep coming back. I mean, an actor I'll bring up like this is Travolta, where sometimes people just have to miss them and be reminded. And I think Elvis uh, was one of those people. And he would have, you know, we would, there's the what ifs. And I think one of them, I mean, I'm, I, I can't talk about music and everything, but the two, there are two agonizing what-ifs that happened in the late 70s, early 80s, of course, was Elvis dying and John Lennon being killed. And those happened pretty close to each other. And that, you know, all of a sudden you were never going to have more Elvis and we're never going to have more of the Beatles. And in some ways, there's a tragedy in that. And in another way, it totally froze them in the period of time of... This is, they only existed then. So there you go. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts about the actual movie and performance? Uh, um, I think. I don't think he's going to win. Yeah. I don't think he's going to win. Okay. I think, the, I, I, look, I think that he's, he could win. I think Austin Butler did a, did a fine job. I think it's, it's up for, I think it's up for several other, Nominations. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's been uh, no other actors were nominated from the film, um, but uh, you know, like costume design and production, all that sort of thing. And if it wins anything along those lines, any Boz Lerman film has a shot of winning things like costumes and set design because that's in many ways that's the star of the movie. Um, and you know, and the photography is dizzying. It's all very showy. You know, Brian De Palma would watch this and say, hey, "Ease up." There's a little subtlety goes a long way. You know, show, don't tell. Um, but I don't think he's going to win because I think the best actor at this point is down to two people. Uh, I think it's down. I think there's a lot of comeback story stuff and the whole Brendan Fraser in The Whale. I think yeah, it's a lot. And I also think, and also in terms of getting your act together and, you know, in a different kind of comeback is uh, uh, Colin Farrell. Uh, you, I, I, if I were to put money down... Only because he hasn't. When you say comeback, I mean he, he's he's beloved and. Well, he always, wasn't for a while. He was he was kind of he was kind of a bad boy. He, that, that Robert yeah, Downey yeah, Jr. quality. It was a long time ago, he's done such good work in the meantime, and he's such a humble. I mean, I love. He's him. become a very humble, good. You know, uh, you know, at least or at least that's what the the press agent wants us to see. I personally think it's going to go to Brendan Fraser. Yeah, that's a yeah. You know, and sometimes, in, and we'll we'll talk about this if we do another Oscar thing. It's it's about the narrative, yeah. of the role, not really the role. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes. That's, Although that certainly didn't happen when uh, Anthony Hopkins won over uh, Chadwick Boseman a couple of years ago. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes the narrative like blows up in our face. Like everyone thought Glenn Close was finally going to win a few years ago for a film 
where she had to play someone who doesn't get recognized for all yeah. the hard work that she did. And then they open up the envelope and it's Olivia Coleman, who, by the way, Olivia Coleman is fantastic in that movie. It's not like they open the, and the Oscar goes to some schmuck in a community theater you've never heard of before. No, Olivia Coleman is remarkable in that film. It's just leading up to that point, you know, it's. Yeah, I was just watching her acceptance speech and it flashed on Glenn Close, who is literally dressed like an Oscar. <laughs> She's got like a gold. There's, there, are, there are times the narrative blows. I mean, I yeah. talked about when you know Lauren Bacall won every award yes. and they gave it to Juliette Binoche and <laughs> Lauren Bacall, like, 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 I, she, I, if she started throwing tomatoes and lettuce on the stage, I would not have been surprised. Um, so maybe the the narrative could blow up in Brendan Fraser's face or could blow up in Kehoe Kwan's face in supporting, but. Uh, I don't think Austin Butler is going to win because for because a probably a lot of people I see isn't paid enough dues, <clears throat> you know. And another is some people might say like he's doing an Elvis impersonation. There's a whole industry of that. But also a film like a Baz Luhrmann film is not an actor's showcase. The Whale is an actor's showcase. The Banshees of Insurance is an actor's showcase. I don't yeah. disagree, but I think that you know with Lisa Marie passing, I think. There is a lot of sentiment towards that and emotion, and I think that 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 may may be something that you know. Once again, the academy does not meet in a big room and they have do. discussions like this. <laughs> by the way, they don't. Go. So what do we do? Lisa Maria, Lisa Maria is gone. It breaks my heart. And they'll have Tom Hanks as the curling. Ah, I think my boy should win the Oscar. Anyway, um, it's look at uh, the the movie Elvis itself is exactly what you think it's going to be. It's going to be a big, splashy, unrealistic theatrical retelling of Elvis's life. My biggest problem with the film, other than the fact that Tom Hanks decides to give one of the weirdest performances of his career, is they should lean heavy on and hear me out on this Elvis mu- music in the Elvis movie. But that being said, you know, Baz Luhrmann said, hey, I didn't lean on can-can music in my uh, Moulin Rouge film. Mm -hmm. So I leaned on music that made it relevant to the audience listening. So that's what he was trying to do, that maybe some people hear Elvis and think, oh, stuffy grandpa music, instead of, no, this was the hip-hop of its time. But that being said... Boys are home, the dog's back. We have a stack of pancakes here for you guys. Thank you all for joining us and listening to the brilliant Paul Sullivan. That's me. found on his knowledge and vividness, vivid, vividocity. Vividocity. Well, let me put away all the notes that I have. No, he has no notes. This is all from his brain. And uh, thank you for joining us on Killer Casting. All right, good enough. I can't. I don't have the touch ID and I don't know your password. Thank you. Is that food? If it's food. All right. Oh, you actually were recording. We're recording. We're recording. We're recording. We're recording. Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. Audio editing by him, Sean at Choice Voice 
www.hollywoodproductions.com and our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting out.